0: And for those of you who I don't know, Jamie Vizzini has the week off. He's wandering around a beach somewhere trying to strike up conversations about the line, the witch, and the wardrobe with somebody. Um, but today I have the enormous privilege of, uh, of talking about Psalm 8 with you guys. And Psalm 8 is one of those crazy bits of scripture that is just... It is a tapestry. It is a web, whatever the metaphor is that works for you. It, it just is beautiful and layered and complex. And the more you read it, the more you get out of it. And, and I'm, I'm super excited to be here to, uh, to talk about it with you guys. Um, now, despite that complexity, the psalmist has done something really nice for us because he has made it extremely easy for us to understand what on earth it is we're supposed to get out of this. Because at the beginning and end, he brackets the entire chapter with this common phrase. It says, Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So our one job is to walk out of here today praising God's majesty and understanding what it means for us to live life under that majesty. So that's the one and simple thing that we should all get out of this today. So I'm going to pray and we're going to jump right into Psalm 8. God, thank you for the church family. Thank you Um, so much for life. God, I pray that you open up our hearts and minds to see your grand majesty. I pray that our hearts submit to your nature, God, that we find nourishment in your truth. God, please purify our imaginations with your beauty. Open our hearts with your love. I pray that submission will come to all of our hearts, myself included, God, that we worship you and you alone. Thank you, God, for all that you do for us. Amen. So I wanted to start out, um, for those of you who are probably like me who didn't go to seminary, uh, Psalms is extremely extremely terrifying to try to address. It's very complex. I can't analyze modern poetry, let let alone ancient Hebrew poetry, but wanted to share a couple of uh, resources with you that I I have absolutely loved the past few years of my life. Um, Reformed Theological Seminary and Covenants Theological Seminary puts a bunch of classes online for free that you can listen to. So the way I look at it, when I go out to Mo, I'm getting my honorary Masters of Divinity, trying to redeem yard work because yard work is stupid and you have to redeem it something. (laughs) Um, but anyway, I, I, I pray that you guys use this. It's, it's great, great content. Um, and if, if, if you're intimidated by psalms like I am, um, you'll, uh, it, it's definitely, definitely helpful. Um, so, Psalm 8. Um, now, if you, uh, there's a Bible in front of you in the seats, um, in the, the area under the seats. Um, we're going to be reading all of Psalm 8. It starts on page 288. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take that one with you. And to give you a little context here with Psalm 8... the book of psalms kind of is this giant crescendo of praise towards the end it gets more and more filled with praise but we're in psalm 8 and but it's still a psalm of praise early on in the book but we're bracketed on each end of psalm 8 with these really dark psalms that just talk about god's wrath and lions tearing people apart and all this crazy imagery but out of that darkness i'm going to go ahead and give away the ending here psalm 8 is all about jesus So out of that darkness, we get Jesus. So get that for the context here going forward. So Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants you have established great strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. So the psalmist starts out, Lord, capital L-O-R-D. This is significant because this is a translation of the word Yahweh, the personal name that God gave himself from uh, from the book of Exodus. It means, I am who I am meaning he is always present, he, he, his personality and power is owed solely to himself, he is never changes, he never goes out of being, one from whom all power and energy in the universe flows, and one whom all creation should conform its life to. Now the good news is that this is meaning, that the fact that God gives us his name is it means he's actualizing communion between us. He is saying, I love you, let's make this a personal connection. So the next phrase, how majestic is your name? Now, I said this is a phrase, but this is a question, and that's significant. This isn't a piece of theology, a note to be taken down and filed away for reference at a later time. It's a question. It says, how majestic is your name? To answer that, the only thing you could possibly get to is praise. So what I'd say is that this this is not something to be note-taken, but something to be lived. It is a lifestyle statement. The next phrase, this is, is kinda of where it starts to get weird. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes and to still the enemy and the avenger. So this is a picture to be imagined. If you can imagine a very small little infant, tiny little arms flailing around, absolutely not powerful at all. I have a baby living in my house right now. He is dependent on me for everything. He can't do jack. He is insignificant. <laughs> But despite that, the weird part is God is saying, hey, you know those babies who just kind of go, Bleh. I'm going to defeat enemies with them. That's bizarre and crazy. But the, here's the vision that the psalmist wants us to have and that, which should stick in our brains. We worship a God who takes great pleasure in ruling the world, not using typical forms of strength. He defeats his enemies with the weak no matter how feeble they are. Now, the mark of majesty for God being illustrated here in Psalm 8 is repeated all over the the Bible. And he is wielding mercifully his chosen vessels, you and me, we'll foreshadow that, which he he also became and died on the cross. So the Apostle Paul jumps in on this discussion too in talking about the meekness and feebleness of mankind in 1 Corinthians 1.26. For consider your calling, brothers, Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in this world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in this world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God, and because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul is aligning Christianity here with weakness, which is very significant for all of us. Now, the, the, the absolutely amazing part of, Psalms here is, or of Psalm 8 is coming up. Um, If you want to jump to Matthew 21, this is where Psalms gets awesome. We'll be jumping around verses 1 through 21 here. Now, the setting here, Jesus is walking into the city of Jerusalem. The last days of his life, he's about to die on the cross. He's fulfilling prophecies left and right. And as he walks in, he's riding on a donkey. He's being very meek and humble. He's not on some Clydesdale with an army behind him and waving a sword in the air. He's on a donkey, And even in that, he's fulfilling prophecy. If you look at Zechariah 9.9, it says, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king come to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on the colt of a foal of a donkey. What we're seeing here is God being humble, and, and at the same time, psalms being woven, Psalm 8 being woven back and forth throughout the Old Testament and the New so if we jump to chapter 14, between the donkey and chapter 14, Jesus walks into the temple and there's all these people doing these nefarious things. They're selling, uh, they're selling things to make money on the, on the poor. They're being absolutely corrupt in the name of religion. And Jesus clears it all out. He builds a whip. Everybody's out. And then he starts healing the blind and the lame. And some say that, well, he's cleaning up religion. He's making, it, uh, he's making it true again. But what I'd say to you is he's not cleaning anything up. He's saying that it is absolutely obsolete. When Jesus walks into the temple that day, he's saying that I am the last and final sacrifice that any of you need. All of religion is pointless now going forward because all we need is Jesus. So chapter 14 of Matthew 21. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple And healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. Now, Hosanna means salvation. They were announcing the coming of the great rescuer that they were all waiting for in this broken world. And then to top that off, they say Son of David, which is the name specifically reserved for the Messiah. So this is a big, big proclamation. And if you notice here, if you hear the echoes of Psalm 8, this is all coming out of the mouths of children. So the, the, the chief priests, the enemies of God, the, the religious elite who weren't all that nice, they, they, they go up to Jesus and they say, do you hear what these children are saying? And now what Jesus said to them next shocked them. Jesus' Jesus's response is simply, yes, which is probably the most powerful use of the word yes. In all of human history, he's saying, I'm God. Yep. Psalm 8 is happening. Yep. Because next, what does he do? He quotes Psalm 8. He gives them a little Bible study because these religious elite don't know their Bible all that well. "Have Have you never read from the lips of children and infants? You, Lord, have called forth praise. And from there, the chief priests and the enemies of God never speak again. The children have won the day. And Psalm 8 is laid plainly out in front of everybody. Now, the other interesting thing that I I think is here is that, that in quoting Psalm 8, Jesus is essentially saying, you know Psalm 8? That's all about me. You know how it starts out with Lord, Yahweh? That's me. And that's the type of thing that will get you killed. And that's what got Jesus killed. If you have... Skeptical friends who look at Christianity and say, Jesus didn't really know he was God or the Messiah. It was just kind of an accident, and we kind of just cobbled together the stories at the end to fit the convenient narrative that we want, is absolutely not the choice here. Jesus is saying, You can take these people, Psalm 8, Matthew 21, Jesus is saying, I am God come down to earth, I have come from the Father. He gives us no other option here, and He weaves Himself into human history in a way that no other figure can or ever will again. Now, praise. We hear people t- um, in Matthew 21 talking about praise, and we are inevitably brought to praise uh, praise from Psalm 8, and, and that's kind of difficult for me. I don't know about you. So I re- when I first sat down, the first time to read Psalm 8, I was sitting there thinking, okay, praise. All right, get busy to it. All right, Ryan, praise. Get Work on it. Go, go, please. And that it just it feels kind of odd to me. Um, and I think one of the best ways to approach it is to approach it from a really bad way. So, for the next couple minutes, this is an, like an anti-Salmon, a non-Gospel-filled sermon. Um, you can imagine like a 1-800 number floating down here for me to accept donations. I have a seersucker suit on. But this is a bad sermon excerpt from a, a terrible preacher that I just made up. Um, I'm not actually quoting anybody. Um, so it starts out, this is a bad preacher would say. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Praise the Lord. How is your praise life your life of praise? I will praise the Lord as long as I live. What about you? Hey, hey, Ryan, let's praise. Praise some more for me. Will you praise the Lord as long as you live? Now, here's why this is rubbish. It is absolutely not filled with the gospel. When you read Psalm, 20, or, uh, Psalm 8 without the gospel... You're going to be led down three really destructive paths. First, you might be coming to it from a point of confidence and say, hey, I got this praise thing down. I'm perfectly fine. Stop bothering me. But at the end of the day, you're going to have something in the back of your mind that says, listen, it's an infinitely perfect God. Do you really do this enough? And you're going to be left in a moment of doubt. The next way you might approach this poorly, if you're just nakedly exhorted to praise is with zeal. You might kind of throw up your hands and go, you got me, thank you for the exhortation. I feel awful, thank you for making me feel awful. I'm grateful for that. I don't praise enough, but listen, I'm gonna put it on my calendar. We're gonna to get to this seven days a week. I'm gonna praise at least once. And that is not complete. That is just moralism, and you will never win there. And the third way, if you look at praise being exhorted to you without the gospel, is just possibly with defeat, and this would be me, definitely, because I would just kind of sit back and go, no, I can't, I won't, I, I, I can't praise that much. I have many failures as a Christian. I'm never going to praise enough. Can I please get a hug from somebody because I'm depressed? <laughs> so here's how the concept of praise, here, here, here's the concept of praise when you insert the gospel. And the best metaphor that I can think of was the wave, like at a baseball game where some knucklehead puts his arm up, he goes, woo, and then nothing happens and everybody turns around and looks at him like he's crazy, but then he does it a few more times and then everybody becomes crazy with him and eventually all the way around the stadium you get the wave. Now this is where the analogy lies between the gospel, God's, praising God's majesty in the wave. When I'm at a baseball game, I don't need to start the wave. I don't even need to sustain the wave I just need to decide whether or not I'm going to join in on the wave. It's like this with the praise of God. In Matthew 21, the Lord Jesus has started the wave. He leads the people of God in praise. You and I do not need to feel exhorted. The gospel is this. Jesus fulfills the exhortation to praise, enabling us to live a life of praise. Jesus started the praise perfectly and fulfilled it on the cross. And now the Holy Spirit is there for us to lead us in praise. So what does a life of praise look like? The second half of Psalm 8 masterfully gets at that. Psalm 8, verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are that you are mindful of him, and the son of man, that you care for him. This verse is saying the universe is huge. I could spend the next hour talking about all the great statistics that tell you the universe is massive and huge and beyond all comprehension, and that we are all complete dust. The point here is to say it's big and you're small, and if you think you're small, just look at the universe again, and you're going to find out you're even smaller than you think you are. But the good news is there's a yet, despite this complete insignificant, insignificance that makes us more insignificant than dust from the world's standards. There is a beautiful, beautiful yet. Oops. I think I'm off a slide. There we are. Psalm chapter 8. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds and the heavens, the fish, and on and on. So what does this mean? When we hear this, we should hear echoes of Genesis 1. You know that part? God has created everything. He's put Adam and Eve in place. He's like, here's some plants. Here's some animals. Go make gardens. Go multiply. Go do great things. Take care of my creation. And we all know that doesn't last for long because Adam, like us, want to be God. And so we've run from him and so corrupted the earth that it's changed absolutely everything. But the gospel is this. In Psalm 8 and 21, this is fantastic news. Jesus is the good and better Adam. He is the new Adam who has come to do what the first Adam could not do. And it's taken further. If you took, think of this in terms of Psalm 8. And what, Psalm, what the psalmist is inviting us to is something amazing. As Jesus is the new Adam and has died and resurrected and defeated sin, we as spirit-filled worshipers of Christ are invited back into the dominion over his creation. Now, that's the gospel. We cannot do it. We have proof Adam couldn't do it. If Adam can not do it, I don't think I'm gonna do it. But Jesus can do it. He can perfect praise and dominion over creation and we are invited into that. So what does it look like to be a human living in a kingdom who's being given dominion? So let's start here, the basics. Because of Jesus, you're a holy and righteous being. You are loved unconditionally by God. You are blameless and righteous. And above all, you are a new creation. If you are a Christian, that is your description. So in that, as a new creation, you are uniquely set apart by God. And in this uniqueness, you are are called to reflect God's majesty and bring praise to him in a way that no other individual on the face of the earth could do. The Apostle Paul kind of gets at it like this. Starting in uh, 2 Corinthians 5.4. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now, the metaphor that I've heard describe this verse is this. If, if you ever visit somebody who's really, really sick, you go and see them, their color's off, they're lethargic, they just look awful, they look like a different human being, and you walk out of there saying, man, so-and-so, he just looks like a shadow of his former self. But the good news of the resurrection hope is this. If you are a spirit-filled Christian, you are just a shadow of your future self the new heavens and the new earth are coming and you are going to be a part of that in a completely different way than you are now. And as you reflect God's majesty in the unique way in which you were created to reflect his majesty, you will begin to appear more and more like that glorified self, swallowed up by life. So earlier this week at the 4th of July parade, uh, a float went by, it was singing the song, people are on board singing the song, I'll Fly Away, which is a great old southern gospel hymn, um, but I was challenged at one point recently to actually kind of look at the words a little bit. And if, you don't, if you're not familiar with the song, it essentially has this refrain over and over again, I'll fly away, I'll fly away. And in between those repeat, repeated phrases is basically saying, eh, life here on earth is kind of crummy, and you know, this is a big garbage heap, let's just all wait till we get to heaven. <clears throat> but that's not what Psalmate is telling us. Psalmate is telling us that we have dominion over the earth now, that God's majesty and victories are happening now. Your mouth can act like the baby's mouth in Psalm 8 now. We're not, our destiny is not some disembodied future off place. Heaven and earth is going to come down to earth. Now, for me personally, this is what this looks like, to give an example the tool that God used to bring me from, life to de- from death to life was an organization called Young Life. And the specific baby's mouth that God decided to choose was a man named Joel Nichols. And Joel Nichols, he came from a very affluent family, lived in Buckhead. He could have taken this glorious job, surrounded himself with lots of great things, really rich and powerful people, but instead he chose to come down to Fayette County and hang out at McIntosh High School and tell people about Jesus. Now, When he kind of described his prayer life to me, one of the things that he described is he would sit back. Whenever he went up to the high school, at any high school event, he would say, I pray for divine appointments to God. Now, to put that kind of in Psalm 8 terminology, he says, uh, he's basically saying, Jesus, you have enemies. And I was that enemy who he was praying for. He didn't have a name for. uh, but But he's saying, you use tiny, weak people. I'm tiny and weak. Can I come see your victories alongside of you? And that's what he means. And that's what we are all called for in Psalm 8. So in his spirit-filled position, in his spirit-filled posture, Joel Nichols went to a cross-country meet, which is the most unglorious of sporting events. And this one was at Sandy Creek High School, which the old course used to just circle around a sewage treatment plant, which just made it even worse on a hot day. And I remember Joel Nichols showing up, and talking to me. And he didn't have a plan. He wasn't some charismatic guy. He's like, hey, I've got 12 steps. We're gonna, I'm going to just talk to all these people. And, and you know, people are just going to be weeping and snotting all over themselves in the name of God. That didn't happen with me. But I do remember him coming up to me, walking up from behind me, and starting a conversation with me. And I didn't fall on my knees to God that day. But he did start in action the events that would one day see me go from death to life. Now... In Joel's posture, in Psalm 8 terms, because he was spirit-filled, because he saw God's majesty, because he praised God and let that affect him and move him out into dominion over that which he was promised in Psalm 8, he saw many victories in the name of God. Not because he was all that fantastic, but because he was spirit-filled. So what's the goal here with Psalm 8? So, I want to caveat everything. When I talk about us going out and ruling and reigning over God's dominion, which He has given us, I am not saying that this is an activity that you must do to earn your grace or build out your faith. That is a false gospel. If you feel pressured to fill up your calendar when you hear talks like this about people going out and telling people about Jesus or feeding the poor or digging a well, and you're met with just a heavy heart of, I don't want to do this, then what you're doing is saying, I'm God and I need to go take care of this. And that's not the psalmate way. What psalmate is trying to illustrate is the inevitability of the Christian life being called and guided by the Holy Spirit in your day, whether you realize it or not. Some people like Joel will realize it perfectly and make it something that he goes out and does. And many of you will be spewing the gospel to people as Christians and not even know it. So the goal here is this, like a flow, diagram, flow chart to get everybody's hearts moving. God uses weak vessels to become Vessels because he is a God who traffics in the love and meekness, not by haughty might. So please imagine this comparison. Over here, you see kind of a superhuman or superhero type of figure who rules and reigns and knocks people out, and he kind of stands around with a prideful hands on his waist kind of posture. And then over here on the other side, you have Jesus ruling and reigning, riding on a donkey, using children to go win his battles. So the goal here is not to pound our fists and go and rule and reign in some sort of bully-like way. Our job is this. We are going to share in God's... God loves to share in his victories with us. And when he shares his victories with us, we're going to see his majesty. When we see his majesty, we are going to praise God. It's going to be inevitable. And when we praise God... He is going to receive glory. And that back to the other side, when, we get, when God receives his glory, we receive our one and only true type of joy. All other pursuits of happiness, they're not, I'm not saying they're bad. They might be great, but they're not going to be the, one, the type that fulfill us. There is a, a secular sociologist named Daniel Yankelovich. And he arrived at this incredible analysis that I'm going to read for you in a second. But he would study Americans and try to find out how they thought things were, how they derived happiness, how they pursued joy. The specific passage is about a couple named Abby and Mark. And here's what he said. If you feel it's imperative to fill all your needs, and if these needs are contradictory or in conflict with those of others, or are simply unfillable, then frustration will inevitably follow. I can't read this and not think about my Monday morning work tomorrow, uh, when I go to work tomorrow. This describes it to a T. To Abby and Mark, self-fulfillment means having a career, and marriage, and children, and sexual freedom, and autonomy, and being liberal, and having money, and choosing nonconformity, and insisting on social justice, and enjoying city life, and country living, and simplicity, and graciousness, and reading, and good friends, and on and on. And he adds this. The individual is not truly fulfilled by becoming ever more autonomous. Indeed, to move too far in that direction is to risk psychosis, the ultimate of autonomy. The injunction, now notice this, the injunction that to find oneself, one must lose oneself, contains the truth any seeker of fulfillment needs to grasp. Now, we could have saved him thousands of hours of research and just handed him the gospel of Mark. So let's go through this right now. We'll, we'll do in three seconds what took him months. Matthew 10:39. "'Whoever finds his life will lose it, "'and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it.'" Matthew 20, 25 through 26, "'But Jesus called them to him and said, "'You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, "'and their great ones exercise authority over them. "'It shall not be so among you, "'but whoever would be great among you must be your servant.'" Matthew 18, 3 through 4. Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Dominion in Psalm 8 looks like this, humility. The gospel of Matthew illustrates this perfectly, and Jesus' life does the same. And so how does this play out on the individual level? This is where the sermon's gonna completely fall apart because the answers are gonna get less and less specific. And this is gonna require your thinking and your communing with the Holy Spirit to really get get answers. Romans 12.2, Paul's trying to get at what do we do as Christians now that we're out in the world? He says, do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you, may prove what, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, in this case, God does not declare a specific word about what to do, unfortunately. The opportunities spelled out in Psalm 8 are extremely broad. God just says, Dominion, go. His Spirit, God's Spirit, should shape our minds according to Romans, uh, Romans 12 and our heart through the word and prayer so that we have inclinations towards what would, what would be most glorifying to Him and helpful to others. The unfortunate re- reality is that there is no super Christian or professional Christian out there who can sit there and say, here's what the Holy Spirit's calling you to do. I've got it for you. If you ever talk to somebody like that, run. They're crazy. But what God has called us to do is Saul made is to love God, praise him, and point people to Jesus. And those, that is our calling. Everything else is up to you and the Holy Spirit. When I, when I attended church in Atlanta, when I was in college, I um, had a pastor who had this very kind of amazing suggestion to do with that prayer life, with that communing with the Holy Spirit um, experience. And he said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go pray. I want you to listen for the Holy Spirit. I want you to go and do whatever the Holy Spirit tells you to do. And the kicker is this. I want you to tell nobody about it. And what this did was this. This is, this is not in the Bible, but this is, this is great wisdom that, that was very impactful on my life. Because when you don't tell anybody about the great things that you just experienced between you and God, three things are going to happen. One, you cannot claim the victory in your own pride. You have nobody to declare it to. This is purely between you and God. And our, our, our human hearts naturally tend towards wanting to puff ourselves up. The second thing that's going to happen is we lose inhibitions to somehow weaponize our activities and repeat them over and over again as a system. Because that is not how the Holy Spirit's going to work. And the third way, the third thing that's going to happen, if you go out, listen to the Holy Spirit and move in his presence and not tell anybody about it, it will allow you to focus on hearing God's voice and building that intimate connection between you and God like a child and a parent because you're not going out and boasting about it as it's your own strength. Now, what this looks like at the church level imagine a community of people all being led by the Holy Spirit, all kind of bouncing off each other, speaking into each other's life, being guided by the Holy Spirit. My wife has a friend. They were friends for years, and she was one of those types of friends who she would never bend towards what my wife wanted to hear. She would always open her mouth and tell her the hard message and she didn't probably even know it. My guess is she didn't sit down like Joel Nichols did and said, I want a divine appointment with Amy Nelson today. But instead, what she did was she just was so steeped in the Holy Spirit, so following of it, that she couldn't help but talk gospel into my wife's life. Now, at the kingdom level, this one could spend the next two hours talking about following God's call to reign over his dominion, over his domain. But I'll just state it this, nice and short. Imagine a world where this church is characterized as people who love, for, love the unlovable and care for those who we don't want to care for all that much or difficult to care for. The early church, they, they were characterized People knew the early church because they adopted children who were throwaways and they cared for the sick. And now I'm not saying any of us need to go out and adopt and, and, you know, go go to the hospital and care for people, but I do exhort you to follow the calling of God's spirit. Just like in Psalm 8, praise to his majesty, listen to to his words, and go out into the domain that God has given us and promised us as Christians.